Hello, folks, and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is your host, Recluse, a.k.a. Stephen Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visa blog and author of A Special Relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visupview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, blogspot.com. And procure a copy of that book and my other works at the Farm's official store, which is at The Farm Podcast, all one word, thefarmpodcast.com store. And please consider signing up for the farm's Patreon. You get two additional full-length shows per month. That's generally between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content. Okay, guys, today's guest is making his long overdue second appearance on the farm. He is a composer, a musician, a painter, a welder, an amateur filmmaker, and above everything else, and, and about everything else you can think of related to the arts. And that's just the arts. He has a remarkable amount of knowledge on a host of arcane topics, making him a true Renaissance man. Folks, I give you guys the great Daniel Dutton, the treasure of Somerset, Kentucky. He is most well known for his operas, The Stone Man, and The Secret Commonwealth, but that is just scratching the surface, as we shall see. Dan, thank you so much for dropping by today, sir. No, you make it sound so lustrous. How could I say no? <laughs> it's a pleasure to be here, Stephen. Thank you for asking me to, to, to come and talk. Oh, yeah. Well, it's always a pleasure having you on. And I uh, frequently enjoy our conversations that we have in Somerset. So uh, be nice to let the audience uh, get a peek in on one of these this time around. Yeah, yeah, I'm excited. All right, so for today's outing, Dan and I are going to have a wide-ranging conversation involving Japanese new theater, theater's magical working, his opera The Farm, and even Ghosts in the Machine. And that's only scratching the surface. And Emily will touch upon some farm favorites like astral magic, scrying, and the illusion of time. Indeed, this is very much in keeping with recent episodes concerning time magic and its variations. In general, time is a big thing right now. Time magic is everywhere, and its more profound implications have been on the minds of a lot of people of late. Our friends and Penny Roy are pondering it. It was discussed quite a bit at the 2021 Astronautics Conference. And today, Daniel Dutton will have his say. But before getting to all the good stuff, we've got to lay a foundation. So here we go. All right, Dan, no theater is a good starting point. It's not a topic most Americans are familiar with, so we need to set the proverbial stage here. Yes. For those of you unaware, no hails from medieval Japan. So give us its origin stories from there to start off with. Okay, well, no, I think in terms of like how it comes into history, um, is known as uh, an ancient um, agricultural rice harvest festival which invoked was a matter of communicating with the forces of nature or um, you know, I want to go ahead and insert my caveat here. I'm going to be sort of mentally translating between different, several different um, worldviews. And so using words like gods, goddesses, shamans, things like that. I want to put an asterisk on every single one of them so that, uh, you know, I'm using a kind of pigeon 
pigeon scientific language, which is another way to say that no is a, uh, has been a very uh, hereditary and traditional art in Japan. And the people really who could speak best to it are the no masters. And the people who are just students of it, like myself, we really don't, don't, don't speak from a position of knowledge. Sorry, was that complicated and arcane? Oh, no, 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 that was nice, Dan. Okay, so I mean, I, now I'll just go ahead and blather various things, saying things which not. Um, the idea in the uh, that is held about how these uh, rice harvests took place in ancient Japan is is reinforced by the fact that there are still rice harvest festivals and rituals done throughout rural Japan to this very day. So it's not as though these things are disappeared phenomena. They're still in place in in a type in a way that possibly is where the no theater grew out of. Um, but in any event, what happened was is that in the ancient theater, there's this idea that the that the god who's being evoked, or in this case, what should more properly be called the kami, which kami is a kind of uh, uh, energy, an organized energy that comes from the other world into this world. And it's it, it, sometimes it's actually even, I think, described in some of the same terminology that people in um, like the old regular Baptist church talk about um, the grace from heaven descending, um, you know, onto the person. And there's very much that thought, I think, about the kami. Kami can come into any uh, animate object or even an inanimate object can become saturated, <laughs> maybe a word to use for there, with the kami. And so with the presence of the, of the other world, the presence of the god. And this was, I think, facilitated in, it's facilitated in many rituals where the, a, a performer puts on a mask and in doing so, they displace some of their own identity and replace that with the identity of the of the god or of the kami. Do you see what I'm saying? It's really almost like creating a meat-based telephone system <laughs> so that there could be communication between these very, two very different kinds of world. It's the world of this uh, animate uh world enlivening energy that can move from place to place and this the lives of agricultural people who are in a rhythm of things repeating again and again you know this is a place where we can begin to bring in your discussion about time because time is so very in, much an aspect of no in every way and this is one of the earliest type of time that we'll find is the cyclic time that happens here because this is connected with the rice harvest so they said that the things that have the longest duration are those things that repeat themselves. <laughs> and so in this case, this is literally true. The rice harvest is still being done. And every year at the same time when it's time to harvest the rice, there's a connection made with something that is, um, I don't know, do we want to use the word cosmic? Let's just say that it's something outside the, our ordinary ideas of duration and belongs to a world where duration is extraordinary. So anyways, this rice harvest festival performance ritual did happen. And at some point in time, when the shogunite 
the shogun warlords of Japan sort of split the country up into a number of territories, each with their own warlord, that the ancestral families who had provided, had been connected with each village's rice harvest festival, kind of became the property of the warlords. Um, and this is an idea that is a Japanese idea. Like the emperor owns certain certain cultural richnesses of Japan automatically by being emperor. And so the warlords sought to own those cultural properties of the regions that they um, had dominance over. They sought to own those. And in doing so, they changed one of the most fundamental aspects about the no theater ritual. In the past, they had performed this ritual for a pine tree. And the pine tree is what the kami came down into. You see what I'm saying? The kami descended into the pine tree, made it anti animated it, made it sentient, and made it able to communicate, to witness the this ritual being done, this, this performance being done. And if the performance was done correctly, do you know what I'm saying? If the pattern was enacted correctly, if you did the pattern correctly, then the communication would be complete and the kami would bless the rice harvest and everything would, and time would proceed, uh, which is, was in part the goal. So when the, the shoguns took over the, this, this ritual festival of performance, they, they replaced the pine tree. Now the performance was being done to the, for the benefit of the warlord who owned it. And in order to preserve the original meaning, the early designers of the no stage painted a pine tree on the back, the wooden back of the stage. It's a small stage. The no is a small stage built entirely out of wood. Um, and it has a back, a backboard that has a, a pine tree. Um, each one of the pine tree designs of the pine trees signifies one of the original families who inherited the rights to perform the no theater. So I, I just found out really kind of by being nosy that that's about the kami and the pine tree and the backboard um, there. But um, this gives you an idea of how deeply this is linked to the idea of a connection to natural forces in, in uh, medieval Japan. And which is preserved into the present day. No theater is still it's passed from generation to generation um, up until today. And in the present time, uh, it both maintains this symbolic connection to the ancient past of Japan, and it maintains uh, uh, an aesthetic mystique, which makes it the its aficionados or the people who pursue it are an unusually uh, artistic and poetic group of people, I think. I, that's, you know, I'm saying a lot of, not saying a lot of important things about this. It is a masked drama, a masked form of dance. And for that reason, it's automatically interesting to me. The plays which are enacted, um, there's one masked character and one unmasked character. The unmasked character is usually a wandering itinerant Buddhist monk traveling from one place to another who encounters some strange phenomena. Um, maybe they encounter an old 
woman in a hut on the mountain and they, the Buddhist priest needs a place to stay. So he stays there. And in the night it's revealed that it's really the old woman is really the ghost of this beautiful woman who died a long time ago in, under tragic circumstances and is now caught in a loop state um, and unable to completely fuse into the universal other and is in like this hiccuping loop state where they keep appearing trying to work out whatever the nature of the tragedy was that caused them to become this way and the monk through his his buddhistic knowledge of how to undo these things sort of does an unbinding spell casting <laughs> thing from the point of view maybe of another culture looking at it in order to release the person you know who has really become a demon by this time this is really interesting idea i think inherent and know that repetition carried to an extreme it said that repetition that even a, a single drop of water falling for long enough will just penetrate through any substance and destroy anything partly because of the rhythm that takes place in it and and no, there's sort of that idea that a person caught in a terrible state for too long becomes more and more like a demon until they are turned into a demon or oni. And the oni is not really like our demons are not really hell and demons are not really like they are in Christianity. So it's a it's a it's an analogy that has some points that make sense, but others that don't connect at all. So it's, yeah, it's really interesting, too, because, I mean, you see in a lot of, um, you know, reported haunting instances, too, I mean, frequently the uh, the spirits are said to, you know, kind of function almost like in a pattern or a loop, you know, they appear right. at a certain place almost by clockwork, at, you know, in some cases at certain times of the day or points in the year or something like that it's uh, definitely fascinating and it um kind of ties in again to like how time is such a big component of all this but before i wanted to make like one point though also like very quick because i think this will be interesting to listeners but we had actually kind of originally gotten into this discussion of no theater when i was bringing up the whole uh, kind of process of theurgy and uh, scrying and how it uh, you know right, right. Had grown out yeah. of that but yes. you sort of you know and concurrently in the classical world in greece and then later rome you had kind of up you know, obviously ancient Egypt I mean I'm being a bit chauvinistic there to the west but I mean this was mm. all throughout uh, you know the Middle East and, uh, and Persia and all these other countries but essentially there was this elaborate cosmology um, by the time really of the Greeks and the Romans uh, that dealt with the planetary forces uh, certain you know intelligence that inhabited them and how they could be you know uh, either the human consciousness could ascend through the stars to meet these uh, intelligences in space or they could be drawn down uh, now what we kind of think of as drawing down the moon into a priest or something like that or also into say a statue and that's kind of one of the theories put forth yes. by people like Dame Francis Yates that some of the elaborate monoliths uh, in the ancient world had actually been built originally to give these these forces a place to inhabit when they were being drawn down by the priest class and so forth which is why there was so much you know time and effort going into creating these uh, monuments in the first place. And it's really fascinating because I think with no theater, you're kind of seeing a similar uh, a, a similar type of, 
a variation rather on this tradition in medieval Japan. So it's just, it's so fascinating how a lot of uh, cultures the world over arrived at these, um, you know, these similar notions. I mean, you could obviously draw another link to uh, Voodon, you know, which grew right, up. Yes. A lot of, uh, yeah, yeah, the displacement, displacement of the soul, sometimes talking about it talked about in that context but i think displacement of identity maybe is that's the word i chose to use today anyway for it maybe that covers a bigger territory because bigger territory is kind of being covered by um by these phenomena in in many ways it's you know it's interesting in in light of the to me anyway in light of uh, of of no and it's uh it's kind of esoteric intent um, winds up being, I mean, in, in Japan, there is, is a tendency to rarefy things, if that's the right way to like articulate things to a, to a, quite a heightened degree of poetics, maybe it'd be one way to, to, to look at that. And in regard to the, no, that one of the goals of a person supposedly coming to witness the no is not so much to follow the 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 narrative intricacies of the play which is usually a fairly simple thing actually or even the very intricate um, uh, kind of mechanical aspects of the dance movement in it or even to appreciate as an aficionado the incredible skill that the performers bring to doing something which is very peculiar for the human body an activity that is not in any sense natural it is so highly artificial that it's actually painful to do while you're doing it and that if you're not doing it that way my my teacher always said you're not doing it you're not doing it right you should take it to the edge of discomfort so you'll become very very aware of your body all over but for the person who's witnessing it the idea is that the whole spectacle is so almost irrationally dreamlike that the, that person gets ajar a little bit and begins to go into reverie, you know, drift into the realm of internal reverie, maybe even just half paying attention to what's happening on the stage at that point, but linking, tapping into a deeper aspect of the self. Almost where, like a disassociative state. Yes, hopefully tapping into a realm where the, the rhythms of life are, are more ordered and they're ordered in the realm of repose, not the realm of excitement in the world where things happen all the time, constantly. <laughs> and each one has its duration, you know, and then each category of duration is a smaller duration. No suggests a kind of floating world of timelessness in which patterns are enacted and can be observed. Um, and yet the person who is having this experience is maybe you could say like that a disassociative state not in a negative sense but in a sense of untethering themselves from reality in order to gain strength directly from the kami if you if you get what i'm saying yeah, that, no, it's it's fascinating and this, this is true i think of like the of like some uh monuments or monolith you were talking about you know like the northern european traditions or of Ireland or 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 um, um, England or Brittany, all of all of that area where you have dolmens and you have stones that are there like that. 
when talking about the kami, like I say, there's a linguistic problem here that's like a red flag for me immediately. When I say the kami comes down into it, and they say that about the loai and fudon too, you know, it just descends onto the person and rides them like a horse. Um, it does give this impression of up, up the thing up there comes down to the thing here. Whereas in the realm of the kami, that kind of up and down um, binary dichotomies, maybe more specifically human than cosmic. I don't know. I can't speak to this. I'm not a kami, but I like to give the benefit of a doubt here on this thing that we may be more obsessed with um, the kinds of linguistic uh, formations that suggest orientation in space and suggest uh, a limited perception of time versus uh, if you're going to call it a sentient in entity that the kami is sen sentient energy, then um, it may not really have that. It may not be a part of its language. Does that make any sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I get. Uh, I think I see exactly what you're saying. I mean, I, I tend to think that. That was another caveat about taking that thing of it descending real literally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I think there was a tendency. Scientists should avoid that kind of language. I mean, I, I think there was a, there was a tendency, at least in some of the European and like Mediterranean traditions, to ascribe the ascending and descending because of the the association that it often had with like uh, planetary and stellar movements. I know we kind of right. talked about this, but obviously like the great conjunctions, for instance, between Jupiter yeah. and Saturn. I, and I, and you know, I think because we sort of made that association with the stars, it was assumed that, you know, that, that they were coming from there or something like that. You know what I'm saying? Right. Well, you know, here's an interesting thing. I, I'm glad you said about the planetary things because I that brought a thought about no. Um, that is something, unfortunately, I'm a little ill-informed uh, to a certain degree on the musical instruments that are used in the no orchestra or ensemble. It's typically, I think it's typically three drums and a, 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 a double reed player, a little double reed instrument, which is associated with ghosts itself. Its sound is associated with ghosts. But I do know that uh, and some other Japanese instruments, the biwa, for instance, each fret of it has a planetary alignment. Um, so, you know, there's like it has it has Venus, Mars and and um, Saturn, I think, on the three frets. Of the thing, and it's considered that when you play it and you playing that fret, you actually are connecting to that. To that star energy or whatever. I think, I mean, I think that's part of the, that's part of the sort of like folklore attached to, to the Biwa in any event. Well, then also too, I mean, often, I mean, harvest festivals as well are usually oriented towards, uh, you know, I mean, the equinoxes or the, uh, the cross quarter days. I mean, I'm not sure what exactly uh, it would be in Japan, but it wouldn't be surprised. It wouldn't surprise me if you, uh, you know, you went far enough back into the distant past, you would see that there had been some kind of connection to uh, some kind of astrological right. event or something like that. Well, you know, and this is interesting. This is we're, one of the things that I've discovered about the no dance uh, really will lead us to uh, this idea of, of time and its significance as an aesthetic event. Um, and I just was really badly in the weeds. I had to drive a, an hour and a half to get 
to uh, where the no teaching was taking place. And then I had to drive back every night and they were long sessions. They were from nine in the morning till nine in the evening with two um, half hour breaks. In them. And the reason being is that there was only a week to do it. And it's very, <laughs> there's a lot to learn. To even do the most rudimentary type of performance of one of the dances really is quite demanding. And I, not a professional dancer myself, uh, but have worked with dancers in, throughout my career, which means that I have needed to be able to do what they do. So I always take class with the dancers. That's what this checking every muscle, every joint of your body systematically to make sure that it's ready to ready for action. Is called in the morning, and uh, in the case of of OA, I just was in the weeds. There was so much to remember. I'm very dyslexic. It's very important what what number that your foot stops on in every sequence you do, and ev where all of your body parts stop have a numerical value that you need to be aware of um, throughout the thing. It just made it it made it personally difficult for me. And I, so I wanted to do what I often do in cases like that is that once I have a, a, an idea of the overall pattern and can make an abstract of that, I can gradually refine the chunks inside it, but I'll be able to get through all the points of the thing from end to end. I thought maybe that'll work. If I don't rehearse in the car on the way, I'm never going to get this. I've never learned it. It totally and not only terribly uh, disappoint myself, but uh, my teacher, Oe Nobuyuki, was so serious. <laughs> and my ego just crashed right against his incredible knowledge of this stance. And he was trying to help me as much as he could. So um, I was felt real determined I would learn it. So I asked him, I said, are the motions in this dance, it was the dance I was learning is the easiest one to know. It's the dance of the shark god. Uh, the story is one of the few that doesn't involve a ghost. And so it's believed to be one of the most ancient ones. So the story goes like this. This fisherman catches a, a strange looking fish, an odd fish. And he's moved by compassion for the fish and releases it. And as a result, the shark god comes out of the, of the ocean to grant this fisherman a boon, you know, because he's done this very selfless, very selfless act. He's in, in effect in the Japanese world of gift giving. He's given a gift by giving life where usually you would expect life to be taken. You see what I'm saying? So um, the, the boon that the shark god gives to the fisherman is to see him dance. <laughs> I mean, I think there's all kinds of other good effects associated with this, like better luck at fishing, etc. Um, but um, basically, it's to see the god dance, and that's what the part of the mass performer is, is to perform the dance of the shark god. And it's one of the faster dances in No, and that makes it easier, too, because paradoxically in No, the slower things go, the harder they are to do. Um, so it's a very easy dance. And I asked him, do any of these movements I'm doing, because there's a fan, you know, and you have all these like, sudden sudden sweeping movements. The body is held very, very stiff and very intact. And the feet are never lifted off the floor except for one stomp of one spot at one time. But otherwise you slide on this polished wooden floor just as though you, you're in tabby socks. So you're just like sliding along like gliding everywhere you go. Um, there's a lot of 
fast twists and whips of the fan and uh, your face is always kept perfectly, never moving to side to side or up and down. It's like it needs to be kept perfectly vertical all the time for the mask to do its job. Um, so I said, is there anything about all these movements that are like a shark, like a real shark? Because I thought, well, if I could imagine I'm like swimming along a reef and I'll turn around here on this part of the reef and then I'll go out there and I'll spin around and then I'll come back down the other side that I can make a something in my mind, you know, a story, a narrative um, that would be like the movements of a real shark. And it was the one time that OA got kind of a little bit more passion, <laughs> gave it to his voice and he said through the interpreter, no, it's a pattern. You know, he was talking in Japanese and I could tell he was being very, very, very firm with me. It's a pattern. It's like a phone number, you know. It's something that needs to be done in an order and executed so that that order becomes the most significant part of what you're experiencing. And so it's a way of subdividing time, you know, into, into controlled minutiae and making it more articulate. It's making an aesthetic act out of time itself. And I think that points to something which that maybe, I don't know, I try to keep it in mind. Um, and it was Gaston Bachelor that said this, psychic continuity is not given, but made. You know, and without the psychic continuity, the everyday type of clock ticks, it's not all that really, it's not gonna do that much for you, you know. Yeah, no. Um, is there anything else you wanted to add about like uh, the movements that the actor engages in and uh, also like? Oh, the, the well, I should. Yeah, no, I should. I should probably say that the, the way the movement of the body is handled is really one of the most incredible genius things about the whole thing, I think. Um, you, you know, we experience time primarily um, or at least very significantly as rhythm. Right. Unless we have some consciousness of repetition, we don't have that much consciousness of duration. So we don't have that much consciousness of time. It takes rhythm for the body to begin to sense time and give it a shape. And those are the rhythms of breathing and your heartbeat and also muscular activities like walking and uh, typing or anything that you might do. You, you find a rhythm to it and this rhythm is kind of your way of, of uh, having time be manifest in your body in a, in a harmonious and meaningful way. Because if you don't walk in the rhythm, right, you know, you're going to be like falling down. And so it has an actual sort of self-sustaining aspect to it. And I had come into this kind of part of the work. I was working on the fawn. I was, that's why the reason why I was taking no lessons was so I could figure out how to organize the materials for the fawn. I knew I was dealing with a different mythic tradition, but the shark god story was enough for me to understand that, it, that the method could work um, with very diverse materials not necessarily I, I wasn't going I wasn't planning to perform no actually I just wanted to to be educated by it as much as I could so one of the things that's so strange about it is the movements which are your body is 
put into a very strange posture that is, like I say, difficult to sustain. It's, it's almost as though you're turning yourself completely into an automaton, you know, that you're just sort of making it. every part of the body is twisted into a position that makes you very aware that it's twisted into that position. And it's kind of from head to toe that way. And that has an aspect of kind of displacing your identity too. Um, and then um, your sewn, the, 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 the clothes that you wear, the costume that you wear, it's, is itself kind of caterpillar sheath-like thing. I mean, it is a type of kimono, but they're so thick and stuffed with stuff. And then you're sewn into it so that it's, that you almost can't move out of this robot-like pose you're into once you're in it because you're just sewn in. And then the mask is smaller than human face. It makes the face smaller than human. And the person putting it on, uh, you go into a room that is called the mirror room. It's just like a little bitty tiny uh, box really attached to the main stage by a long plank. And you go in there and there's a mirror and you look at the mirror until you can visualize the mask actually being on your face. It's laying in front of you, but you don't put it on until you can see it on your face. And then you put the other one in, you like merge the one you're picking up into the one you imagine being on your face. And that's when then you can, the little curtain that opens this tiny room is opened up and the, the mask performer starts walking on the long gangplank that's from the other world to this world. So it's like it's, you're seeing the supernatural being making kind of this long journey because even the fast note is not super fast. It's like you're sliding along this long um, gangplank until you get onto the stage. The movements that you take, Oe describing is like, imagine that your feet are tied to concrete blocks with the first steps that you take. And then you get stronger and you pull them and you pull faster and faster. So it's like dun 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 dun. All the rhythm is like that, you know. Dun 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 stop. And then that stop, time stops entirely, really, to continuity. It's an epistemological break that's kind of absolute. And the drummer will then go yo. And this yo will mean that in one half of a beat, a new piece of time will start up. And you'll begin to once again drag, 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 get faster, get faster, get faster, 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 stop. And it's made of chunks of time like that. It's really a fascinating um, art form. All right, is there anything else you want to elaborate with the stage and the metaphysics behind it or other magical aspects of the performance? I wish I could talk more about the, the, the meanings of the stage. The stage has a number of spots on it, dots that are invisible dots, but the performer knows where they are. Um, and they have names and, si and significances too. Um, they, each one of them has a name. And if you understand the name of it, it does give greater meaning to the thing. Somewhere I have my notes from all this, but it was just too much as you can imagine to um, assimilate all of that. The, underneath this, the stage, there are four gigantic clay jugs 
that are suspended by ropes from a set of posts and they're directed sonically right on one of these dots. And the one time that the, your foot does leave the stage, it's to stomp it, to hit the stage with a boom. And because those big jugs are hanging right under that spot, when you stomp on the stage, boom, it makes a big vibrational uh, low bass frequency, you know, go through the whole area uh, where people are at. So it's something you really physically can feel on the these low the low sound and it's the only time you hear it you only hear it like one time so it really it makes an impression on you and in a way that thing sort of it sinks the time of the event into space um if you think of bass the bass note as being uh, a three-dimensional thing like that and just sort of imagine it being almost like a, opening a black hole that opens up Open space, or what is in some Japanese art forms is called ma, or, or emptiness. That's something that the rational mind has a hard time dealing with. <laughs> All right, so briefly, let's address how this relates in some of the more mystical Western theatrical traditions, such as the Globe Theater of Shakespeare and other tropes, uh, troops and directors from the Renaissance. What do you got for us on that end? Well, I mean, one thing that's really comes to mind instantly that this is these are the the deep theaters are theaters uh, where identities are dissolved and made um, in different ways, and um, it's interesting how that that gender identity is dissolved in all of the performers in No uh, and in the Kabuki theater too. Are, have traditionally been male. And, you know, the, the performers who do female roles, this is usually something handed down from grandfather to father to son, plus a whole bunch more grandfathers on that. Um, and it's something which the Japanese mind approaches this idea maybe a little bit differently than we do. I know this was in Kabuki, not in No, but my tea teacher, Chisada, was with me and we were watching um, one of the one of the legendary great Kabuki form performers doing a, a female part, you know, a female role. And uh, Chisato leaned over and whispered to me and said, they say he's more woman than woman is. <laughs> and I think that that's in a, in a realm where pattern and custom and uh, the expression of ceremony become paramount, then you can envision the genderless performer. And that was, that. of course, there's a whole resonance of fetishes that come into play whenever this subject comes up as well. And that was something that was very interesting for the fawn and that's something I was able to, you know, sort of put that into play very much in that piece. But in the lack of the gold theater, the same is true that initially the female roles were done by men with, um, and with some of the same con consequences of they also wind up being uh, a site of, um, what would you call that? Um, I want to I want to find a way to describe the idea that that a more diverse concept of sexuality somehow winds up getting associated 
with the place where the Kami energy is at its most powerful. Do you see what I'm saying there? That this is a, it's a kind of a liminal zone that is created by the very fact of, of your, even if this is just something that mind and the audience, they're displacing the reality. Well, there's a lot of, I would say there's kind of a lot of hermaphrosism that's always been prevalent in a lot of yes. theatrical traditions throughout yes. uh, really recorded history. And that, you know, in turn is often associated as more of a, uh, a magical uh, kind of being in and of itself. I mean, yes. this is, you know, again, I mean, depending upon how much you subscribe to somebody like the occultist Kenneth Grant, I mean, this is kind of the purpose of a lot of magical workings and so forth. The sort of Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. No. And, and uh, you know, I think that it's that, um, for many people, some of the things associated with that could be associated with these uh, states of being. You mentioned like the the uh, state of the seer or the scryer or the the visionary person, the you know the pro prophet or prophetess. Um, see how quickly we had to get gendered there. And interestingly, apparently in Norse world, it was a very much believed to be a fem female thing. That, that the female power to see into the other world or whatever was stronger to the extent that that there were male practitioners, but they wore female clothing, which was wound up giving them a, a maybe in the very ancient Norse, it was not as a. You also had the, uh, the tradition. Not as bad a role, yeah, you know, as it would have been later. The, uh, the tradition of the Sibyls, too, and um, was it ancient Greece, I believe? Right, yeah, in ancient Greece. I mean, I think that that, that that's that, that you see that in the Globe Theater. You see that this part of the you see part of another flip side of this same thing in the in the so-called Brechtian theater that evolved of Bertolt, Bertolt Brecht and um, Kurt Weill coming up in opposition to Nazi Germany. You know, with the fawn, the study of fascism comes with the study of the fawn. Um, it just kind of is inherent in, in some of the, there's intersections there that take place. And curiously, there were in European history very much intersections between the rise of Nazism or fascism in the world. And um, the, the, the different ways that the symbol of Pan or the symbol of the horned being wound up being used, interpreted and working their way through culture. Um, it's very, it's really, to me, one of the reasons I love working in the theater is because it's very much an entrance into a liminal zone. If you go into it uh, completely, try to be completely honest, you know, about what you're doing with it, and you try to look at every aspect of, of how, you, don't, you try not to go in with preconceptions about how things will work, how reality works, how time works. Um, this idea that time psychic continuity is something you do it's not time isn't something that just will go on happening if you die time will go on happening people have that saying but how what do they know about it nothing <laughs> you know they actually know nothing about it and in fact for your life to have continuity and for you to have the sense that it has a narrative structure to it you have to do it you have to perform it you have to make it it becomes an intentional act. And that is another intersection with the realm of magic. It would have to be magic if you, if you, in order for you to have the experience of time, you have to intend to have it. Um, 
And I think that there's some really good arguments for that being the case. You know, it's it's just fascinating to, um, I mean, how much the, you know, the tradition, even as it's going, you know, storytelling kind of in general, as it's evolved uh, throughout the centuries, has always had the ability to tamper with conceptions of time. And I mean, I'm thinking specifically now, you know, with movies, TV shows, I mean, you know, you can have 15 years fly by in 30 seconds, you know, you can exactly. have, uh, you know, five seconds extended into two minutes through slow motion. Uh, and then of course, I mean, some of the, the truly great artistic directors like Kubrick or David Lynch, I mean, they really knew how to, uh, I think deliberately use pacing in films to really invoke, I mean, a disassociative state at times in the audience. Uh, this is especially true, I think, of Kubrick and sort of the deliberate pacing and just the sort of odd uh, performances that he would often elicit from his actors. I mean, sometimes they were, you know, deliberately, I think, satirical, but other times, I mean, I think in some instances he was maybe going for something more what you're kind of elaborating with, with the no theater and so forth, almost these uh, human caricatures almost. <laughs> Right. Well, they're 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 intended to be these these aesthetic constructions that are capable of communicating. <laughs> you know, they're kind of communication devices in a way, and they're able to communicate with something else, something besides what we think of specifically as human. And that's really a challenge for the human mind because obviously we're not going to be thinking of anything that isn't human. <laughs> we just, you know, we, we really, our, our powers of our imagination tend to drop remarkably when you take away everything human about our experience. But some things we could postulate do seem to have existence outside the realm of the human, like pattern, like rhythm, like repetition. And so there, I think they do have a, a very, if we want to think of, of magical activities, is it is some type of, of way of organizing intention in order to benefit the organism that's doing the that organizing, um, then yeah, that I think you see then why dance and why art and music have been so profoundly important to um, the evolution of beings. I mean, maybe the maybe the real maybe poetry is actually what organizes life, human life on this planet. You know, you're, are, are we here destined to sing the songs of joy and pain? Is that, you know, is that actually the, that, is that really what's in operating here in it? But artists tend to like to think that way. Anyways. Well, yeah, and I mean, I think it's important, too, to point out here as well that, I mean, the arts, you know, historically in most cultures were often uh, associated with spirituality and were seen as, uh, you know, you know, most religious ceremonies and so forth in many cultures, uh, right. which, you know, I think in a lot of ways uh, is rather apt. I mean, I've often said that um, spirituality and storytelling are so crucial to uh, the human experience because they very much shape our conception of reality. So uh, it kind of, I think in a lot of ways, stand to reason that they would be so intertwined with one another, especially since much of uh, the best spirituality is organized around stories and so forth. Right. Yeah. You know, I, I don't know whether, I don't know exactly how to feel about this, but uh, in some ways, but you would think that considering the importance of the imagination to our um, to us living, that 
the amount of training of, for the imagination or the efforts to, to um, maybe it's not something that can be taught, but the practices which enable you to access it um, can be taught. It's remarkable how little attention those things actually get from um, a world that's far more concerned with, with filling up time with um, money, the making of it, <laughs> and the spending of it, you know, uh, again, a cycle of activity, it's sustaining a cycle of activity, which is not, um, art has to sort of go on in spite of that particular thing. Or maybe I should feel the other way around it. It's just good that they, that basically, that um, the powers that be stay out of that. And every individual artist and every individual person has to figure out how to do it themselves. So there is that. Yeah, no, I mean, it's definitely a complicated situation, but I mean, yeah, I get what you're saying when you sort of go back to, you know, the concept of like a classical education or something like that. Right, I mean, right. Yeah. things taught like the art of memory that were very conducive to uh, unlocking the imagination and the subconscious and individuals so that they could right. uh, find means of expressing these kinds of ideals. I mean, there just really isn't like a preserve, you know, uh, something comparable to that uh, kind of training in this day and age, unless you're going to really exclusive you know academies and schools and that type of thing right. yeah and and you know we we definitely all of us i think appreciate um the availability of of information and we know that this information is collected and shared with a certain amount of activity that takes place with it and individuals are active in that to greater and lesser degrees some people primarily consume it you know are consumers for the activities that other people do. And some of those activities wind up being aesthetic. And so there's, there are artists and their function, I think is entirely visionary in the sense that, that um, at least for me, art is a way of giving some kind of meaningful shape to uh, an experience around me, which is uh, pretty amazing in so many ways, <laughs> trying to get just a grasp on you know, what, what it is about and how it works and even just how it appears or even how the ordinary practice of doing something like drawing or making a song um, can cause it to take different shapes. The experience becomes very differently shaped. Um, that was really a wonderful thing that for me, I learned no helps give me a lot of, a lot of clues about how to approach doing the fawn. I mean, I took things from other disciplines as well. I mean, and other types of theater as well, not just the fawn. I tried to be as cross-referential as I could. You want to get into some more of the inspirations for the fawn now? Well, um, you know, undoubtedly the the main inspiration for the fawn is probably sex. <laughs> That's just Pan just made me say that. <laughs> but it is kind of true that we're all really curious, you know, uh, or at least I have always been really curious. Some of the things that you discover are startling and, and perhaps not all of them are um, as alluring as, 
uh, or let's just put it this way. Obviously, people have different lures, but everyone seems to be touched by this subject sooner or later. And so, I, you know, as uh, in my work, it's almost as though certain things have to line up almost like uh, the fruit on a slot machine, you know, like it's got to be, it can't be apples, oranges, lemons, cherries. It's going to have to line up cherries, cherries, lemons, cherries, at least. And then the work of art starts gelling around this conjunction of different, sometimes different worlds or different realms. It's a place that I'm sensitive to. That liminal zone is a place that I do feel visionary. In. I feel like I know which things belong and which things don't belong. So I'm able to make decisions that, um, that remove what characteristics are not helping this art form become clear. And at the same time that I'm sort of excavating or revealing a structure that's already there. That's the reason I earlier brought up that sort of like caveat about the kami descending. Because for me in the art making process, the revealing or revelation of the visionary thing is almost more like excavation. It's more like removing removing something that's obscuring. And that's why it's connected to the occult arts too, as well, I think, you know. Um, it was really interesting to me to see how that one of the things involved in the fawn, working on the fawn, which was the idea of repetition of body movements, um, led me to the work of Moshe Feldenkrantz. I don't know if we talked about Feldenkrantz or not. I don't believe he, he was a, he was a, he was a, uh, he, he at first worked with Marie Curie. And then his research went off on a tangent having to do with the body and how, um, how neural networks that form from doing repetitive movements, the sort of consequences that they can have from, for the body. He's, he's probably most known because if you're like a classical musician, a classical pianist, maybe, or violinist, you, and you go to a music conservatory, you may take classes in the Felden, so-called Feldenkrantz method because it's one of the methods used to treat uh, repetitive, so-called repetitive stress disorder. And I had this myself. I got a lump on my wrist from playing the harpsichord for three years too much, and um, it, it, it was painful. Classical musicians are, are taught how to, to avoid repetitive stress disorder to a certain degree by doing the pattern to make the, the particular music phrase to vary it and not always do it the same way. If you have to repeat something over and over, have more than one way to do it. So Feldenkrantz had, he um, had this way of talking about the neural networks that were developed through repetitive movement and so think about repetitive movement you've just been born you're an infant first you just waller around from side to side and then eventually you start crawling you know and that's a repetitive movement this is a rhythmic repetitive movement you do so you learn to crawl you can move your body crawl 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 and then gradually you figure out how to stand up and you take those first steps and then you're walking and it's a repetitive movement you learn how to do that in the meantime, you're learning how to do all kinds of things with your hands, your fingers. Maybe you'll even learn to play the piano, you know. Um, you're able to, to articulate the movements and the parts of your body in different rhythmic ways. 
Well, the average person, this pretty much tapers off at about puberty, like about 14 years old or whatever. You know how to walk, you know how to sit down, you know how to lay down, you know how to run, you know how to do pretty much every rhythmic activity you're going to do. And that's just where it ends. Your neural networks and your brain don't develop any, uh, any more complexity than they had at that point. So it's sort of a simple vision there of what motor certain people like musicians of course are going to become more detailed because their fingers are going to be repeating all these little patterns and the patterns are very detailed as to how what their timing is i mean think of computers working on this stuff you know trying to replicate all these minute movements of the fingers this one a little faster this one a little slower now the now the person is playing a little faster now a little slower now they're hitting a little harder because they're expressing something so more and more detail. He, he developed this idea of what he called the homunculus. And if you think about it this way, imagine a little person that's going to be a metaphorical representation of the neural networks in your brain. <clears throat> and these only concern your body movements. So the parts of your body that have the most articulate movement will be the ones that are the largest. And the ones that have the least articulate movement will be the ones that will be the smallest. So immediately, this becomes a very odd-looking creature. The eyes are enormous, you know. The tongue is pretty enormous. Um, the ears are vestigial. There's almost nothing there. The head actually is as little about as little as you can get it. The neck, there's a little bit there. Um, hands are enormous, you know, very articulated. Things like the spine. Some people more than others, but great degree of variety. So you can see kind of this weird homunculus being in your mind that represents your neural networks. Well, in doing that, really, although he didn't had, didn't intend to, he well, I don't know what he intended actually. Maybe in choosing the word homunculus, which in the Kabbalah and in, in Jewish ritual magic, that idea of the of the homunculus and the golem have a, you know have a whole other sig significance maybe not unrelated to this significance. So that was really helpful in working on the fawn. It gave me the idea that the fawn's other world body could be articulated by removing stereotypical so-called normal movements of the parts of the body, inventing new ones and replacing those movements, always with a different way than the way people usually did it. And that's what I did with the dancers. Was we spent eight, eight months really deprogramming how to walk, or rather putting in a switch, almost like a, this is once again so much like the visionary sense. I've come to think of the visionary sense as being more like the sustain pedal on a piano. You can push it down and there it is, and you can take your foot off and it's gone, and you won't die from doing it. Um, the, in the fawn, it was kind of like that. You could flip a switch and then you would not, you would not walk the way you walked before. You wouldn't sit down the way you sat down before. You'd have invented entirely new ways of doing each one of those things. And that was the vocabulary of movements that we had inside the gauze box. We never did anything like the way it was done outside the gauze box with our bodies. And as a result, that space inside the gauze box became valorized and turned into a 
whole kind of articulate sensing, the kind of sensor that sensed something um, that to us anyway, was really a profound kind of experience being inside of it. So how much did you draw upon sources from ancient Greece and so forth? Well, I, I did quite a bit. Um, I know one of the one of the things that was a real wonderful guide to me um, was Roberto Colasso's um, Cadmus and Harmony, um, a book which is really kind of a looking at Greek myths and how their interconnectivity um, and sort of like viewing them more as a, as a network or a system of things rather than necessarily their, although each of their individual narratives and each of their meanings is, is strong. I mean, one a simplistic idea that was very quickly that I incorporated into the work was the sort of the Greek idea about the gods that if you felt something, then the gods were there. If you felt love, then Venus was there. You know, our whole ideal ordeal that we have is whether, does God exist or not exist? Is God there or not there? This is just not a part of that particular way of thinking. If you felt it, that is what it is. So there it is. The proof of the gods is constantly being demonstrated to you. And um, that, that also um, led me to look closely at the texts from the ancient poets and try to look at the different translations of the text and try to see if I could get some grasp of, you know, translators never translate things the same way, but by looking several of them, you can sometimes get an idea of the thing they're trying to translate that's better maybe than what any one person settled on. I found that phenomenon in Japanese um, things a lot. So I was kind of applying it to the Greek text as well. But I utilized the Greek text to do all the lyrics for the fawn once I had made my own English translations of them. So um, that to itself, just by going through the thought patterns of the ancient mind, even whenever they're really extrapolated. Like one of the things I did, I, I took... Uh, Mallarmé's poem, The Afternoon of the Fallen. And I sent the French one through to an English trans online translator and translated it into English. And then I translated it back in that new poem, which was nothing like it. I mean, you know, like nothing like what poets, the way poets have tried to translate that poem. And then I took that weird translated thing, like pan became casserole. <laughs> you know, in English. So uh, I translated it back into French and then back and forth, sort of like wearing a stone away with water or something, you know, to see what kind of language, what kind of residual language would come out of utilizing these online translators um, in the realm of poetry. Uh, I, if I recall correctly, too, you had mentioned that you had gotten to see one of the uh, the kind of famous depictions of it, or at least a famous early depiction of Pan in one of the caves, I think it was in France. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, due to a, a, a real terrific aversion to Thanksgiving and having some um, patrons who from the art world 
who liked me well enough to invite me to, to France to have Thanksgiving with them. They knew my fascination. This was in like Southwestern France in the Dordogne. And they knew how crazed I was about the ancient cave paintings and really about any ancient art anywhere of any kind or any art history anywhere of any kind. Um, they set up with the French archeologist in charge of those caves to um, take the three of us into three of these caves that are, that are usually closed to the public. And the, the rationale for taking me into it is because I'm connected with the world of opera and singing. Um, they, there was a theory that the archeologist had in, that in these caves, there are a lot of things besides paintings of animals, you know, that are inside the caves. There are a lot of- Oh, the acoustics, I'm guessing, right? There's, yeah, they wanted me to test the acoustics on certain spots. There are places where there was a red dot placed in places in the caves. And there was seemingly no reason that could be figured out for why these red dots were in the places they were at, unless they marked acoustically significant spots. That was a theory and that's what I was there to test. So I sang a very old ballad called The Boar Hunter uh, in each one, because that seemed, you know, I thought a hunting ballad maybe would be the thing that would be have ancient roots. And that ballad does have roots that go back at least as far as the ancient Greeks. So um, or the story has got roots that far back. And it, so it seemed like a good choice. But yes, yeah, seeing seeing that the earliest representations of humanoids that we know of all have horns. They're all they're all mammals, you know. And kind of specifically mammals too, because the the earliest ones we know of are male. Now there there may be a cave discovered any day, you know, that will have that will have paintings in it that will totally change our minds about everything that we know, think we know about those about those painted caves. You know that Werner Herzog film um, Cave of Forgotten Dreams is such a fantastic introduction too to this same idea of time of ancient time of time that was so far back that it's no longer connected to us at all um there's no continuity there something that archaeologists have to kind of term, come to terms with philosophically about their whether you will find out anything besides the mathematical relationship of the objects to each other or whether you can somehow another reconstruct it reconstruct what happened here what were these people like what did they think what what were their ideas or their values is this my are these my ancestors of course they are you know was there anything else you wanted to add about inspirations for the phone mm, well you know you had mentioned earlier the idea of the ghost in the machine and so there was that i mean I did, I did a lot of looking at things online that had to do um, with dating and, and pornography too, or the idea of erotic imagery, um, which is very, always one of the things that technology is put to that job as quick as it can, you know. They say that technology, it's the second job it gets every time is to make pornography. Um, so maybe that's the way human, the human mind goes. Um, but I also, one of the things that really prepared me for it was uh, because of my interest in types of dance, 
And I studied a lot of kinds of dance besides snow. I mean, I was just thinking the other day and remembering that I, that I took one of my best dance, dance teachers taught me Elizabethan court dancing, <laughs> which is who needs that unless you're making a movie, you know. But for me, it was real important because it did deal with patterns and the way patterns are, are thought of in dance. But I did a lot of club dancing, um, mostly in Europe, but some in the United States. And the things that I learned about the space and about people's why they go dancing and where they go dancing. So that was one of the reasons why I wound up using sort of the genre of kind of within the realm of club electronica to create the music for it. You know, I thought instead of doing something that was utilized organic um, instruments or that idea even people have of natural sounds like primitive man you know which is people have that that idea not really sure what they're thinking of whenever they do it so i thought is the fawn is pan in the disco you know is it there and of course it is a site for both erotic adventures that people have there and, and also a site where people go looking um for adventures but it's also a site of like ecstatic release <laughs> too as well and so it puts it in the realm of of pan you know this the realm of ecstatic release where the rhythms of the body and the movement of the body um achieve an ecstatic release is a connection to it even a roadhouse is i mean country music is very connected to the myth of pan so um Pan is the originator of country music, that music which is longing for the longing for the significant other that you're hoping to snag as soon as possible. <laughs> or getting over the sorrow of having lost one, you know. Those are kind of the those are the kind of the country music impulses. So that was a big thing. And uh, so I, I wound up using synthesizer to do the music with. I mean, I recorded animal, animals like birds and uh, frogs and <clears throat> Katie did's and things that were around my studio and let them provide the natural rhythms and the natural sounds in the thing. And I went inside the machine to see what I could find. And I didn't use an analog synthesizer either. I used a digital synthesizer, a real mainstream one, the, the Korg Triton. That would have been like a Japanese creation of the nineties, I think. And uh what's well, also interesting too with the Trident name. I mean, obviously that's pretty right. similar <laughs> in and of itself as well. Well, you get in the mythic and you just are gonna run into this stuff constantly. So yeah, I can look at that as being very significant now of how that of even just that name, the Triton, how that came in at the time. But um, because of the weird way that the Triton the engineers who created the the sounds and the sequencers in the Triton, the way that they thought about time and the way they decide to use math to express time or to use to use numeric sequences, they they really did an, a super extra amount of work because they couldn't solve the problem of the not all rhythms on Earth go are in four four you know that doesn't really dividing things into into duples does not 
actually work for everything, or it's not convenient to work for everything. So they they had some triples. They had like a bank of sequencers that were devoted to doing triple forms, and they had a bank of sequencers that were devoted to doing the quadruple forms, and basically did two whole machines in one rather than figure out another problem. And they hadn't intended those two sides of the machine to ever communicate with each other, really. But there was a there was an opening, there was a snag in the in sort of like the secondary programming level where where that you could get the sequencers that were had been assigned for the fours to be playing in the threes or vice versa. And it was initially a very chaotic sound, but I found that by scanning up and down the speed of the sound, there would be one place in the thing where that these two rhythms would come into synchrony with each other and create a new type of rhythm, which wasn't either of the previous ones. And that, that rhythm would control all the sequencers just as though there were fingers and things playing. You could assign whatever sounds you wanted to them. And you could also assign certain like stylistic aspects to the thing that would carry over as well. So I made all the music really based on hunting for this glitch that was in the machine um, and uh, utilizing that to be the foundation for the music that came out of it. And, and I felt like too, it was a thing where that I had stayed true to the idea of pattern, but also the idea of disrupting the continuity of time as well. All right, we'll keep the synthesizer in mind. We'll get back to that in a moment. But um, I wanted to uh, briefly touch on uh, no theater again here because I believe you kind of used that for the structure of the thon of the fawn, which I think was an absolute stroke of genius. So I mean, how did you? It was a desperate act by a desperate man. Well, sometimes that's where the the best <laughs> ideals come from, man. It really is. Yeah. Uh, I agree. <laughs> so, I mean, actually, one of my most well-received podcasts recently was the Gifted Program, uh, one that I did up uh, the uh, Patreon section, and that was basically because a guest had canceled on me at the last minute, and I was uh, just sort of scrambling, right. what can I do, what can I do, and then I ended up doing all this arcane research that I think ended up producing a pretty damn good and informative show, so yeah. there you go. Sometimes yeah, I yeah, no, we just never know, we never know what the never know what the pathway will be that will take us forward into the future of art. That is, that's for sure. So it's kind of, I'm, I'm happy about it. it. It worked out really, the fallen actually was a gift I gave to myself too. It's so interesting to me to think back about it because I had done the, uh, the show about ballads um, just before that. And it had been a successful show. It was a, in the 21C Museum and I sold the, these gigantic paintings I'd spent three, three years doing. They sold well and the show was really well received and everybody seemed to be, you know, really enjoy having this experience of part of what the ballads could be like, you know, how all the doors that they can open up in your mind. And because I had done well, I thought, okay, well, this is one of those opportunities where I've, you know, I know I can survive for another year, even without doing anything that is commercially viable whatsoever. And I'm going to spend that time working on something I really want to work on. And I really wanted to, to return to Greek, to Greek myths, because it was something I had been really interested in as a child. 
um, is really interested in Greek mythology. It was the first mythology that I learned what a mythology is. That was the one that I learned first. So I thought, I want to do this and I want to do Pan because I have special interest in Pan and the nymphs. So by doing, by choosing to give it as a gift to myself, I think I opened up part of its kind of cosmic quality to it. It has seemed like a, ultimately to be like a devotion to Pan. And I feel like I'm getting the benefits from having made this devotion too. So that's an interesting, that's an interesting aspect to the piece, which I, I, I didn't go into it trying to get that to happen. I didn't even know it could happen. Um, I went into it thinking it would be really interesting and it would be really something I would enjoy a lot. Um, and really it turned out to be um, all that and more in the sense that it opened a lot of, of doors to me. And obviously here we are talking about it years later, it still is growing in power. So I, it's interesting to me to, to say, we often think that the things that good that come to us come from deprivations that we do to ourselves. So it's interesting to think about something good that comes to you that has to do with you giving a gift to yourself. And in this case, giving a devotion to a God um, at the same time, because the, it was free of any other tethers. It wasn't like that disastrous sacrifice that King Minus made to Poseidon. You know, this is the case of a, a legit sacrifice. It was interesting, the first book that I got about archaeology connected to Pan was one about um, the grottos, you know, the places where the rites of Pan, if, if and what such things might have been, they did, they apparently did happen, um, were usually in natural, slightly altered natural caves <clears throat> or grottos where the, the, there might be a, there might be a sculpture or something there or some kind of uh, story connected to the cave and the spot. And eventually there was an official kind of created grotto that was made in Athens because of the, um, the Battle of Marathon where Pan interceded to save the Athenians. So that's, he, Pan didn't have a cultic site in any city. It was a, not only a rural or rustic site, but a positively uh, a type of wilderness, you know, a liminal zone in between the human and the animal realm, the realm of nature and the realm of civilization. And the myths play that out in that story about the music contest between Marisus and uh, Apollo, um, where the Apollo's music of the spheres and order and, and civilization and whatever are are countered by the, the rustic, horny tunings on the flute of an obscene fawn, <laughs> which everybody wants to hear, you know, is the thing about it. It's very interesting. They have their powers, both have their powers for sure. That fascinated me and I just really wanted to explore it. I had, it, it was really interesting. To, you would think the machine that the, that the synthesizer would be the most Apollo, Apollonian of instruments, right? 
it's like, isn't it just practically math in, in an essence? Um, it's a, especially a digital one where it's just like, you know, all these little zeros and ones <laughs> involved in it. But uh, that even in that, there's some hint of, of chaos or it isn't chaos. Um, it's a different kind of order that is intersecting with it. It isn't, it isn't chaos, he said. <laughs> I mean, it's like synthesizers too. I mean, how closely associated is, you know, kind of talked about with club music. I mean, they've always been, and I mean, even yes. that, you know, I mean, sort of uh, echoes, I mean, the rites of Pan. I mean, frequently they're, uh, you know, taking place in almost a cave-like uh, space. I mean, a dark club. I mean, sometimes uh, they even are literally submerged. Yeah. I mean, there's that uh, strong hint of, uh, you know, sexuality in the whole thing of, uh, right. of just general decadence. I mean, all of that is present. Yes. yes. Well, you know, it's so interesting to think of the synthesizer itself. Uh, certainly was sort of vision, envisioned as a futuristic instrument from the very beginning. There was, a, there was a very naive idea that it could make any sound, you know, which was patently untrue, but it was its flexibility. It's, uh, you know, it's chameleon-like ability to to imitate sounds, but maybe more important to everyone was its idea that it made sounds from the future. You know, there were like futuristic sounds. The any time that there were uh, certainly, at least in popular media, representations of uh, flying saucers or or spaceships in the future or whatever, you could almost count on something like the theremin, or you know, or a synthesizer to be doing that strange toneless sliding up and down through through uncharted unmathematized space yeah it's fascinating once again we kind of arrive at the whole concept of time again as well i mean it is almost sort of like something to uh, you know in the terms of like the synthesizer it is almost like you're saying i mean something that's coming to us from the future uh, and it kind of has that disorienting effect to it in a sense um mm. But okay, so you, you kind of, after a while, came to believe that you also had a collaborator in the synthesizer, right, while you were composing the opera? Well, I mean, it seemed to me that, like, everything was intrinsically there. The, the, the you know, this, the Triton has loaded into it all of these riffs and uh, drum patterns and uh, all the different uh, all the building blocks of popular music are already loaded in there. This is to convince the musician who believes that this instrument will lead them to fame and fortune, that they have access to the entirety of music at their fingertips. And not only that, you can hear a, a, a plucked or a fretless jazz bass playing this line, which is the sum of the parts of every boogie-woogie line that's ever been played or every rap bass line that's ever been played. You know what I'm saying? They just had all these choices. Some of them uh, undoubtedly developed through popular music, but some of them just mathematical inevitabilities of dividing things into sets of beats that way. So they have all these sequences in there where um, perfect robot hands will play for you the this chunk of melody or whatever, and all you have to do is move a single finger from one key to another, and it will pl 
play the whole sequence starting when you first press the thing. So I was able to play the eight different sequencers that you could set up in the Triton so that each one of them, each finger was triggering a different function, you know, a different pattern that would be played. And as long as I moved these exactly on time with where they needed to move, this new pattern would begin duplicating itself. Maybe it would only duplicate itself one time and then I'd have to switch to another key and it would go off onto another sequence. So I was able to play a really kind of a complex piece of music um, just as a single performance. You know, the recording it made it awful because there was you just couldn't make any mistake in it and fix it. You can fix most mistakes in the recording studio these days, but this was peculiarly unfixable. But um, at the same time, it was, it made it a little bit easier to play. That whole idea of sort of having to, the machine and it had everything in popular music that it was, uh, that if I could just distill what that was out, just select the things that would, work with this one peculiar weird glitch place in the rhythms of the thing and apply that ideologically and universally to the sound that it would that the pieces of music would emerge naturally out of what the rhythm suggested to that's why I would have chosen the particular rhythm to handle one of the stages or steps in the in articulating the myths of pan and the nymphs there were certain jobs that had to be done in this in this sequence of things and different rhythms that I ran into in the machine suggested the different things like the first one, which is pretending to sleep. Um, and it just seemed to me that that rhythm just seemed hypnotically static. It stayed, it stayed in that strange state where that if a person is pretending to sleep, they're trying to act like they're breathing steadily and, evenly you know they're not moving in a normal way they're moving in a sleeping way that sort of that was the that, that that's at the beginning is the beginning of the performer disassociating their identity and replacing it with this other um artificially made identity and it's a perfect it's a perfect place to do that thing since pretending to sleep can be an erotic gambit um all those things kind of fell in place a little bit just from these inherent, um, what would you call synchronicities that were built in, built unconsciously into the machine. The building of the machine was more like just trying to, they were trying to build a dictionary, you know, <laughs> with it in a way. And this was like using that, using that dictionary, um, as a as a stand for a sculpture <laughs> or something else. You know what I'm saying? It's like sort of changing the function of from what the machine was intended originally to do. And curiously coming out with something which was in a way exactly what they thought it would do, just make new music that sounded like club electronica. It sounds like it in one way, but if you're paying close attention, it doesn't sound like it necessarily. And it has a lot of allusions to popular music in it that, that were not part of the machine, but which I deliberately put into it because it seemed like really wonderful to pile that on then.
you know, it became a carrier for, for meanings and ideas that had to do with stylistic tropes in the music. And I could, I could begin to play with that language too. Yeah, it really is a remarkable score. Um, I mean, it's it's kind of hard to define, but yeah, I mean, it's got kind of elements of dark wave, ambient. I mean, some kind of field recordings, as Dan had uh, alluded to. Uh, I mean, even some uh, kind of uh, you know world music, I think, influences and some of the rhythms and so forth. But I mean, yes, it's uh, it's very distinct. Um, I guess I do detect a bit of a cockatoo twins influence on in some of it too, actually. Yes. Yeah, yeah. There's one. There's actually one piece in it that's just completely sort of a it is a, a salute to the cockatoo twins and <laughs> and and their and, and their blissed out thing. That's the one I use the lyrics from Sappho for you know so it, it's like the moment of of blissed out communion that happens in the music and it just that seemed to, to work so well you know for for the performers inside the gauze box each one of these rhythms is very much associated with a a, a place or a situation in the overriding narrative that that we're working with internally there to keep the sections in order. And so there's like, there's a feeling of air temperature and humidity and a lot of things that have to do with a natural landscape because the site of the fauna is supposed to be, uh, it's like the, tea, like the tea house or the no stage. It's a syncretic artificial site, but the site, is supposed to be the border of a marsh, <laughs> you know, a woodland marsh in Ar Arcadia. So you have this everything from sort of like the mountain down to the edges of a, of a, of a marsh. And at different points in the music, these different rhythms seem to be associated with these different altitudes of the landscape and the, the kind of temperature and the mood that there is in it. It's, there are parts in the fawn where when we're inside the box, it seemed very much like this sultry noon sunshine where everything is so, you just want to loll about, you know, in the sun. It's too, it, it's a, the, although the activity inside stays very, it, there's always activity taking place inside. There was a, one of the rhythms that just seemed like that to be so, um, slinky <laughs> that it seemed to you just felt like you were in this humid humid area in the edge of a swamp not an unpleasant feeling either but you know something that was very pleasant actually but a feeling that you want to move in a slower way a more lazy way um came very naturally in it that helps you be in the experience of the of the thing. I mean, just like in the no theater where this idea that the communion with the God comes through the enactment of the pattern. I think that's, that's what we very much felt in doing it. It was a little bit different in that we didn't use math to achieve that. We use nature to achieve that. You know, we tried to look at the, we tried to let the body speak in what we were doing there and what felt good to the body um allow that to direct what we were doing that itself it sounds like a decadent act right <laughs> isn't it interesting what where we're allowed freedoms and where we're not allowed freedoms to explore 
uh, culturally, it's culturally speaking, you know, there are inhibitions that are that would say no, no working reasonable person who's being an upstanding citizen could waste any time lolling about in the sun, imagining being a fawn. Well, it's, it's interesting, too. It's kind of like the opposite of, uh, of no theater, uh, in a sense, even though you're sort of using the structure of it, you're, uh, you're kind of having the actors do what feels good as opposed to sort of the rigid uh, movements that was, uh, you know, imposed yes. in actors yeah. no theater. We had a weird dynamic that was happening there that, that was um, several times in the course of this conversation, I've come close to using the word exploited. And I'm going to avoid that. We, we did, um, but we did utilize a phenomenon that was there that had to do with light uh, and the experience. And th these were taking place in an art museum, which may or may not be a, a ideal spot for, <laughs> for a fawn thing to take place. But it was, where we, it was where it was taking place. Music was quite intense. We had a really good sound system. So the music was quite loud, just like, just like being in a club. Um, but the gauze box, which was in the center of the space and that we were inside of, it's not a huge box. It's bamboo with gauze that's sewn onto it to form like a, a box or a cocoon that you can get inside of. And it had to Tommy Matt floors in it. And it had wooden uh, troughs, almost like window boxes coated with tar that uh, held water. Um, that surrounded the edge of the thing. And there was like a wooden form, a thing, a sculpture that functions like a bench and a mountain and a, and a place to stand on or walk on as well. It really, in one way, the, the thing had a weird connection to this idea that grew up um, from, well, from the ancient Romans forward, but especially in the 1800s of a zoo, you know, of an, an endangered animal being kept in a pen. You know, here we were, we're in an art museum and we're trying to get to something that's very deep to the human experience, but we're in a pen because we need this space to be enclosed. It needs to, we need to feel safe inside of the thing to do what we're doing. And weirdly, the gauze is about as much protection as you could get. You know what I'm saying? Like you could have iron walls, but still, if people are watching you, the iron walls keep you in just as much as they keep them out. So um, because it was lit within, we could barely see people outside the gauze box. Like you could see their ghostly faces through the gauze, but you really couldn't tell much about. We couldn't tell that there were people sitting very close to the box all around it. You know, I don't know how many people were in the the performances each time and you meet maybe a couple hundred at the most at a time but enough so that you felt very surrounded by people but they had a different experience because to see the art that was happening they had to look through the gauze you know they had to peer inside it and from outside because it was illuminated you could see the you could see the people who were inside the box you could they were a little bit like there had been some vaseline rubbed on the camera lens but you could see through it and you could see actually what they were doing and that made them like peeping tops you know the voyeurism was amped up because they thought oh we're going to watch them inside this box and they're going to do something they're going to they're it's called the fawn i bet they're going to be 
doing simulated humping, you know, or something like that, which is, in fact, the furthest thing from what we did. We learned really quickly that to eroticize the space inside the box, the best thing to do was for us to scrupulously stay away from each other. You know, the more distance, the more pull that we kept from our bodies from each other, the more the erotic tension would develop. So we learned that we learned that really quickly in the thing. Um, but the people outside were watching it as though they were seeing an illicit performance. And I'm sure they kept waiting for some simulation of sexuality to take place in it. But that I don't know if that did or did not happen. I know that we felt very liberated with our bodies. And I know that that I at least felt uh, very confident and very aware inside the space. And I was much more of a, I was a lot more cocky than I would be under ordinary circumstances. I felt very empowered inside. It's like the people watching me, their eyes watching me didn't, wasn't a, it was a thing that I felt very much in control of. And uh, that gave us feeling of, you know, a sensation of both of relaxation, but also of a little bit of, well, if they're watching me, I'm sort of like showing off, you know, too, at the same time. But it didn't interfere with the ability to be in the fawn's body. The fawn's body is showing off all the time. It's showing how fabulously shaggable it is, <laughs> which is a stretch. It was probably a stretch for me at the, that particular point in time. But it is a truth, you know, it's like an elemental truth. If you're enacting the pattern of the thing, then you will feel that and it will be real to you. We really, I mean, I wish that everybody could have the experience of doing it because I think for us, it felt, it just, uh, it just put a whole lot of things that had been formally not so well understood into forms where it could be a little bit better understood. All right, so was there anything else about the recurring process of the opera, the performances uh, that you uh, wanted to uh, add on to? I know there were only a handful of performances, right? Yeah, we, we performed, uh, I think that there were uh, five performances in all, <clears throat> two in one art museum and three in another art museum. So, but the nice thing about it was, is because it, it was just, um, Initially, I hadn't thought to perform in it. I was going to try to direct, but it just didn't didn't work out that way. So you just had three performers who were inside the thing and one technician who was going with us to to and this was uh, this is Jason Pierce, the person I, I did the recording of the phone with. So he did the sound system and helped me with the lighting system. I designed the lights for it, which were really minimal. And the box itself could be taken apart. Into, or the gauze box could be taken apart entirely, moved to another museum and set up. It took about an hour to set that box up, including sewing the gauze onto it. So it was kind of portable. And that was really nice because previous, the previous works that I had done required a lot of transporting. You know, they just required a lot of setup and a lot of time. Um, the, the secret Commonwealth things required, you know, they not only required years of work, but they required many months of rehearsal time and then and then at least a week in a theater to try to convert the theater into a cosmic <laughs> instrument. Um, so this was one that, by contrast, was really portable and seemed real 
um, I felt like I was coming up with something that was more like a method or a system than I was coming up with an object, you know, which is what people usually think of the art museum experience being about. So this is more like a, it was a methodology that would work to enable people to have a certain experience. And the experience definitely was very much about time. Um, it was about memory and about time. And a whole lot about um, the body. Now, I know you said there was some controversy around it. Do you think that it was possibly because it was disorienting to people um, because of how it was trying to play with concepts of time? No, no. <laughs> the controversy was entirely linguistic. Um, the controversy all happened before I did a single thing. I mean, I had arranged to do the show in this museum and they had assured me that they did all kinds of cutting edge art. And so anything I might do would be fine. I was much more reticent because, I, well, I taught, I taught a, a class at Wheaton College up in Massachusetts called Controversy in 20th Century Art. And the reason why I was asked to teach was because whether the, my own art was considered controversial primarily because it didn't arrive via academia. So <clears> that was, I guess, an interesting point there to, to put the controversy on. But in this case, um, the only thing that was known about this piece, I hadn't really figured out what I was doing yet. I just knew that I wanted to do it about Pan and I was gonna call it the Fawn. Actually, I was really first, my first thought about it was, is that I've always been really fascinated by this sort of Try convergence between um, Stephen Mallarmé's poem, um, the Prelude and Medieval Fawn, the the Afternoon of the Fawn, Debussy's tone poem called Prelude to the Afternoon of the Fawn. Um, both of the things, I mean, seem to suggest that these that by calling it a prelude, you're saying it's not even the thing; it's a thing that happens before the thing. And then um, Vazlav Nijinsky's ballet russe performance where he choreographed this and utilized the ideas which he got from Greek vase painting and Egyptian murals as ways to stylize the movements of the body. Um, Nijinsky is especially interesting to me in that he is an artist who will develop what used to be called schizophrenia or some mental illness and completely become, <clears throat> he left a, a diary, which is one of the most uh, articulate documents of a, of a schizophrenic state. I mean, it being done by a great artist, it, it, has a, it has a little extra, you get a little extra, I think, from it than you might from some, from some of the documents that are produced by artists who are called, um, well, I, I mean, I remember my first introduction to that realm of art was a book called Art of the Mentally Ill. <laughs> and um, that's sort of like the way it was thought about at that point in time. But of course, once again, we're in an, in an intercession, a liminal zone for the human mind as to what will be called mentally ill or not. And predictably schizophrenia was, um, was somewhat short-lived as a concept. And now they have a concept where it's like personality disorder and it's put through a 
a range of grades according to how uh, well the person can disorder. yeah how well the person can function in a so-called normal society right so um, that uh, that was really interesting the fact that Nijinsky did the fawn this this sort of ritualized performance that involved the evocation of pan or of a half man half animal being and that then he would go on to become more and more mentally ill if we're going to use that way of approaching thing but in any event his illness would become so severe that he was unable to function in society or and or was institutionalized so um that just made the whole thing very i'm uh, a student lover of debbie say's music as well and uh and stephen malame is arguably the you know, sort of like the beginning of modern poetry and in some ways the, the of a truly kind of abstract poetry, if the abstract even makes sense linguistically um, to talk about. So I really wanted to look at that, what it was. Why did it happen then in 1919, you know? Was it 1919, 1912, I think. Why did it happen then? What was happening in the world, you know, that made this, this piece a controversy at the time? that it was introduced into the world. So I guess the idea that it was going to be controversial maybe was already built into there, but I was truly surprised when they were like, we're going to shut the art museum down and defund it or whatever. And all they knew about it was the fawn. That was just two words. And one of them, the, arguably, isn't that controversial. And I did not know that the fawn, just the word, could stir up so much controversy. I don't know whether it has to do with ideas of uh, licentiousness or whether it has to do, I mean, that was one of the questions that I fielded. Well, is there going to be nude dancing? I hadn't even thought that far, you know, it's like, well, I guess I'm going to have to ask the question now myself, is there going to be nude dancing? Uh, <laughs> you know, so I was surprised actually at the controversy, but um, it worked out. I was able to I was able to mediate my way through it and still have the performance and have the art be the way that I that I felt like it should be. But with a piece like that, you know, it's sort of true in my work that I get to have the experience of doing things like that. And really I have to move on usually to another work. And I can see how that the work on the fawn could have gone on continuously from the point in time that I got to that point until now. Because it is still, it's still act, it's still active now. I still am discovering things about it. I'm still finding ways to articulate that vision. Um, so I'm still seeing it. You know what I'm saying? I'm still having the visionary experience of it. This year, I interacted so much with goats that that alone changed everything. I mean, if I was to head back to doing a performance, and we are going to do a performance of it again very soon this summer. I'd hoped that we would get there by the spring, but certainly by early in the summer, I have a plan to, to do a performance with more than three people, um, just to see what will happen. And this time we're gonna do it outdoors instead of doing it in an art museum. Oh, were you uh, planning on doing it at Dandyland? Yes. Oh yeah, 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 yes. no, that would definitely be interesting. Yeah, we can control so much here about it. And interestingly, one of, the, there too, obviously. Yeah, one of the things that we're going to do with it here is that um, we're going to utilize the oracle, uh, an oracle um, of inscribed horse teeth. <laughs> uh, 
in order to determine um, kind of how the tasks are handled in the piece itself. So really basically what we're doing is introducing a random chance generator into an organizational aspect of the performance. I'd still intend to keep the time frame. It's going to last the same amount of time. And the various things that are done within it are going to be the same amount of time that they were in the original. But this time we're going to utilize the Oracle to determine how, how who's going to do what and how during during those sequences of time. And that should be a really interesting experiment that will un, that will uncover a whole other aspect of structure to the piece that that was there, inherently there in the other piece, but invisible. Yeah, no, that sounds absolutely fascinating. Now the, the fawn has generated more attention in the last few years than all the time since you completed it. And this coincides with Pan making a comeback in a major way during the ensuing time period. I mean, what is it about how, what has it made the public ready for these things now? Um, well, okay, so I've got, um, I have two theories, one which is uh, positivistic and the other which is perhaps slightly scary. Uh, <laughs> one is informed by a historical phenomena in a way, and the other is informed by utopianism. You know, a whole, one of the focuses of my work has been to, to examine utopian projects. So I've been like, a, I've been an avid student of the Shakers and various, you wind up studying cults because too, because they pretend to be utopias, right? But they're not ultimately. Um, so I can't say that about all cults, but we definitely know that cults have got a bad name in part because certain ones like Jim Jones or whatever, you know, everybody who joins dies. <laughs> so it's, it seems like that's not such a, a good kind of cult. And really, I mean, the, the pan, the fawn is a cultic behavior. It is a devotion to pan. Um, to do it is a form of devotion. It's that type of devotion where you, you not only educate yourself, but you commit your body and your body's energies for a certain period of time, a certain, a certain chunk of time, which will either become deeply resonant with you and so expand and reward your devotion to it, or which will wind up um, being confusedly constrictive to you, I suppose. I don't know what the other side of it would be, but you devote yourself to it. I think generally you get the good result um to that that uh, that process for people to engage in formally was an aspect of community building too the rice harvest in japan is something that brought all the community together with a shared value i mean it wasn't really anything that needed to be debated about whether the rice harvest was important for the community or they needed to have the fries to eat. It was very basic and it was very linked to the body and the body's needs. And so everybody could come to this festival and have a sense of connectivity to it, a sense of connection, of shared value. And it's in these shared values that the Kami energy actually has flow. You're making connectivity there. You're, it's like you're hooking the neural networks of the brain up into the pattern of a movement. When you hook the neural networks of a group of people up into shared values or a shared goal, then this thing will kind of reveal its blessing to you, if you can utilize that blessing term in this sense. But 
let's just say that it will reveal to you things that will be important for you to understand your journey in life. I mean, this is what initiating rituals and this is what uh, visionary experience, experiences are, are supposed to bring to you is some sense of how to guide your life forward. So the idea of, of creating a thing like that in modern times where people, because of the great variety of information they have on one hand and because of their incredibly restrictive ways of using it that are culturally imposed, you know, um, and have to do both with the economy we live in, the politics that we live in, all these other things that come later after survival and food and joy and love and art and um, can seem to have precedence and, and obscure that life-giving, life-affirming part of taking, of taking part in some sense with a pattern that makes sense to you. It's a pattern that you have a good feeling about what it means and what it says. It's not one that is that is restricting you. It's one that's reinforcing your strength. And uh, that's because it's speaking to you on a very primal level, on a level where that it's not about opinions. You know, it's not about um, it's not about the insignificant. It's about the it's about the nature of, of the reality you live in itself. That's the idea of doing that is oddly kind of more plausible now than it was in the past because of what we're doing right now, this digital communication, you know, it's made that more plausible. And I think also the group of, of young artists, young thinkers, people that are coming up now in the world, a lot of people in the world are re-looking at their values, resorting what the values are, the, the, the pandemic and its uh, effects caused people to relook at their values and what would be valuable to them. And that's where you begin to look and see what is meaningful? What are, what are some meaningful things being done? It's real interesting. I think a lot of things that people formerly valued may be collapsing in some ways and new things are forming. So I like to have a utopian idea that the, that the fawn is and pan are making a resurgence in our collective consciousness because there is an attraction there to a feeling of this good and positive aspect of having an animal's body which we do have a body we are animals we haven't we are mammals and that's what we have in common with pan um you know it's this mammalian nature that especially, but beyond that, the idea of nature as a force period comes into it. And this is a powerful and very valorized meaning for people. So there's that. Okay, so on the other side, the scarier side of it, I think that sometimes pan appears when fascism is imminent. You know, that's when the panic starts to happen, right? Because because this this order devoted to to sensuality, to luxury, to everything gets ramped up and accelerated faster and faster, and it's turned into rape. Now you know it's turned into um, too much happening too fast, and suddenly you're panicking. It's almost from a synthesizer view that the phenomena of pan is on a sliding bar. 
And when you slow it down, it becomes more erotic because the object of desire is just, a, it, it's just out of reach. You're longing for it. You're moving towards it, but it's somewhat evasive. You're still pursuing it. You're in the state of pursuit. And that seems to make time slow down, slow down. Whereas the other side, the acceleration, like the Battle of Marathon, it's when people suddenly freak out. They just panic. It's like too much is going on and there's pain. Suddenly you thought that things could get in crazy. Er, and a giant horned half human, half animal jumps onto the scene. Um, and it, all hell breaks loose then. So I don't know whether that's thing. Definitely the the earlier rise of the image of the fawn in that tightly corseted Victorian world where that it emerged there into the drawing rooms of European high society in this elevated form of poetry and a new type of, it wasn't quite ballet, it was a new, it was modern dance. Um, and a, a piece of music which went into entirely different kind of realms <clears throat> that was something which um, would herald in the Second World War. Um, you know, one of the most uh, vivid displays of the rise of fascism and authoritarian power. So um, I wonder, you know, if if that's part of the Internet's realm of, of pan. Pan represents nature here, um, and it kind of is the ghost in the machine. It definitely, there's a great deal more interest now than there was when I was working on the fawn. There was actually very little interest at all in any of it when I was working on it. I mean, academically speaking, there was little, some, but very little in it. But in the pop culture, it just hadn't become a thing. And then hot on the trail would be that uh, movie Pan's Labyrinth, you know, would be a, sort of a pop culture thing that that touches on the myth. Before that, the, before that, the only American entry on the field is Deliverance. <laughs> yeah, not the uh, most appealing one there. Yeah, but it is, it does have the myth of Pan. It, it is, I mean, everything there is intact. You can find even the bestiality aspect of it is sort of inherent there, but definitely the realm of the hillbillies. I mean, that's one of the things that was fascinating to me about doing pan is because, see, I'm like a hillbilly and I'm a barefoot person living in the mountains. So I'm like already prime pan material. But the hillbilly has always represented in American consciousness the wild man, right? Like they used to think in Europe just over a little further to into Eurasia. There were hairy, wild people living in the woods. This hairiness is associated with the idea of the wild man. And actually, the idea of the werewolf is kind of connected in this too, but uh, but the hillbilly is kind of an, a primitive person, an uncivilized person, someone who has chosen to drink moonshine and loll around in the sun playing the fiddle, and, you know, uh, being, being at one with nature. Um, that had, was very powerful idea in, um, in American society, particularly in realms like advertising. The hillbilly has been an icon of primitivity. There's also kind of the connection with folk magic as well, which I mean was also sort of a longstanding association with Pan as well. Right, right, yeah. 
yeah, that's a, that definitely is thing. All of the, to extent, well, we just passed through May Day and that whole Maypole <laughs> erecting a erecting a good long pole on May Day and then having the lads and lassies dance around it and wrap ribbons around the phallic symbol. You could hardly get more. Um, you could hardly get more in the center of the idea of the of the pan the devotions to pan and that whole thing and that's very deeply connected with um european folklore presumably going back all the way to the neolithic i mean that's an idea anyway that's presented especially by the i guess what are sometimes called neo-pagans by people who study the history of the history of of um well witchcraft it's interesting too because pagan was actually originally a derogatory uh, term used by uh, Christians in the uh, waning days of the Roman Empire to uh, denote country bumpkins. So this right, yeah, yeah, hillbillies. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Well, you mean this story is so ancient because you can go back to Gilgamesh, right? Like um, Gilgamesh is the the ultimate king of uh, of of Ur and then but then this character arrives um who is his equal in strength Enkidu who can communicate with animals and whose body is covered entirely with hair you know until they send the the temple prostitute to woo him and and corrupt his his animal nature with the lures the sexual lures of of civilization you know, that's an interesting story. It's like a story of the loss of innocence, one that involved the loss of communication with animals. <clears throat> and I think that idea is that idea is lurking in our contemporary consciousness still. Isn't that amazing? All the way from ancient Mesopotamia. Well, Dan, what is it, though, about what we're seeing, this increasing uh, kind of synergy between pan and technology? I mean, in a lot of ways, the resurgence of pan has coincided and been fueled by the rise of technology. I mean, nominally, this seems very contradictory since, I mean, mm -hmm. you know, talking about pan is kind of the god of the wilderness, and the wild men and the country bumpkins. But uh, he's also sort of become the god of the new electronic frontier as well. Well, I don't think that that's, I don't think that that's so unusual, but it means uh, the, the computer system is a binary system, you know, and I, I think we talked a little bit about that. It's the way that it connects so easily with IFA and the, and the Yoruba, the Yoruba divination system that uses a very binary concept of twins really to begin sort of butterflying ideas into, into um forms that are almost like the ones that go to call the molds <laughs> you know they're like these universal forms that define certain things i think that um that pan is so important to the digital world because as we explore more and more this this realm in which part of our thinking and interaction take place in this in a digital format the value of our of our animal side becomes more and more attenuated um it's a very precious aspect of our of our history and of our knowledge so i can see how that um the increased interest in pan in one sense is a decision to keep certain 
idea about nature and keep that value even in the most obtruse territories, like the territory completely of technology there. And that is maybe that's as a natural phenomenon, it has to do with Pan's penetrative ability. So, you know, when you get around to the the, the phallus and its function, <laughs> it's penetrative. That's how we envision it, how we think of it. And so by by proxy, all types of penetration fall under the under the sway of the powers of the god Pan. If you know, to the extent that we're correct about analyzing those functions, then that will turn out to be that would probably turn out to be true. So the even the aspect that we have of being able to to do what's called research these days to penetrate into these layers of digital information to seek things that very penetration uh, the 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 piercing through an occult veil um the the literal just putting putting point a and point b together to begin to form a pattern those things we still link it to this ancient ancient god of the shepherds that increases things by by via its phallic virility and also i mean there's no pan without also the other side there's there's the polarity here it isn't about a gender dynamic that has to do with domination and submission and all of the fetishistic ways of looking at domination and submission of which Perhaps the one of the least useful ones in human history has been the one that categorizes male and female as being these two things. I mean, it hasn't done much for women's rights, that's for sure. <laughs> but um, now I think maybe we're seeing the emergence of a more holistic view about that. And, and then an ability to see that as more of a, uh, a quality that any person can possess. And even in one sense, you can, this there's there is the the penetration and the penetrate it's penetrate T. it's two the things echo each other and in echoing each other they add depth to time and as we add depth to time our values have deeper experience and we have time it, the. Enlarging time is a vertical art. <laughs> I could say that. You add depth to, to time by feeling deeply, thinking deeply, engaging deeply, having deep intent. And I think we see the the uh, the internet as very much a kind of scrying pool itself in the fawn. They had this one of the tasks that took place in it is this getting of water. And it's we had like a black a bowl to use as a basin and get the water. And then the two participants would try to touch the surface of the water without breaking it with their fingers. Um, so which means just really paying attention to the skin that water has on it, the membrane that is on the top of water, it's tension, surface tension of actually just touching that so that you can feel it without breaking through it. That heightened sensitivity is where you get to the that's where you get to the, the scrying visionary state. And I think that we do kind of use the computer that way. Isn't it like a magic mirror um, in 
our functional sense. We turn it on and we ask it a question. Mirror, mirror on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? <laughs> or, you know, or what is the what is the link between uh, between? Well, it is the, interesting. I mean, I'm sure you're probably familiar with uh, Psychic Youth, you know, the Genesis P. Orridge band uh, from the 80s and 90s and so forth. But I mean, he also oh, yeah, yeah, right. Uh, the Temple of the Psychic Youth as well, which was kind of his chaos magic thing. But um, they had their own sort of method of scrying. And in their case, they used uh, television uh, turned to uh, video snow, essentially, which they would gaze into. Right. So in a sense, you know, we've already been kind of moving towards this direction where the uh, the technology would actually become the vessel for which, you know, we would uh, use to have these intelligences inhabit. I think that our, our prejudices about, um, about machines um, may have in part have to do with the underhanded ways that we've achieved having them. Um, you know, at this point in time, we are a little nervous about um, industrialization and its effects on the environment that we're living in. And so there is a sort of caution about all of this technology. We know that it requires, it requires precious resources and some of them which may be destroying things that we're not really even entirely aware of yet so there is a kind of consciousness that's coming with it and arguably that is i just think that anytime that you you know pan is sometimes so you use that pandemic or pan to mean all all encompassing I, that's not the linguistic origin of the word it isn't thought to be these days but we do use it that way of saying you know way of saying all so that whenever you say all in this case, we're including all the things we make, like the technology we make too, that Pan is the God of all these things has to do um, with the way the powers are conceptualized it's, itself. The, the, the Greeks had a term for Pan, pro which means before the moon, that Pan was there before the moon first rose and they, in the Greek tradition, the moon rose before the sun. So it's another way of saying Pan was there at the very beginning before there was chronology, before there was measured time, <clears throat> when time was still unmeasured. The time of the Titans, when there was no measurement of time. Pan was already there waiting for the moon to rise. And with the rising of the moon, the beginning of measured time happens because the moon is cyclic, you know. And it's going to go over and transform. And then, of course, when the sun rises at some point later in this story, um, you have an even more time being made into a, into a formalized thing. So <clears throat> that Pan is there to first observe the beginning of measured time, um, puts it at the very beginning of our discovery, of our sense of discovery. So in a way, Pan is linked to a deeper function and a deeper set of values than, than the machine, even the concept of the machine is. Like any tool we're going to use um, to help us advance us, we're going to at some point sort of return to that Pan-like state before the state of measured time and then begin to experience how time is measured. And undoubtedly, as long as we continue to reproduce, which is going to be <clears throat> as long as we continue to exist, and certainly for many people, as long as they continue to exist, they're going to be horny whether they reproduce or not. 
I think that your animal awareness of your body is going to be there. Like we use our computers for all these things, but what is one thing that almost everyone uses them for? At least if you could see across the United States, all the blue screens late at night, you would know very well that, that pornography online, in spite of the fact of it being incredibly free, grosses more than all of the other entertainment mediums combined. You know, so it's just a very, very universal phenomena. And there too, we maintain pan. You know, we do our devotions to pan. Um, every time that we, every time that we look for an, a, some kind of erotic initiative, and so I think that's maybe the presence of pan becoming more and more present is just people getting more and more savvy about what they're about what's really happening in their lives. Yeah, it's uh, certainly to think, something to think about, no doubt. Um, and yeah, it does kind of seem like there's that sort of contrary nature of the internet that it does uh, bring out the more primordial aspects of people frequently through things like pornography and so forth. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure that if the ancient Greeks had had our computers, they would have looked at them the same way as having the capacity for an Apoll uh, Apollonian function and a capacity for this, this pan and rustic things. When when Pan was was dis born, discovered, and her Hermes took him up to Mount Olympus, you know, all of the gods, whenever they saw Pan, they didn't know there was even going to be another god, right? Um, when they saw Pan, they all busted out laughing because he had, even as a baby, he had a hairy legs and a horn hard on, you know. So they gave him a drink of 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 ambrosia, you know, a drink of the that liquid which keeps, you know, the, the gods don't have blood in their veins like elves, they have ichor. <laughs> and uh, so that ambrosia is what starts the flow of that of that divine ichor in the being and turns them into a eternal being, an immortal being, or at least compared with us, immortal, you know, spanning over more repetitions, having a rhythm that is bigger than the than the rhythms that we are conscious of. Well, as always, Daniel Dubnin has been a fascinating conversation. Uh, definitely, we'll have to have you back on again on uh, the farm here at some point, and sooner than awesome. come around. Yeah, 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 and you'll have to keep me posted too on uh, when the uh, performance of uh, the farm will be happening this summer. I'd love to go out there and cover it here for the farm. Yeah, yeah, we'll definitely, we'll definitely let you know how that's developing. <laughs> we're we're real excited. We're real excited about it. It's it's one of those things where quite a few things have got to be discovered um, to get there. But we have gotten as far as figuring out that we're going to wear clothes and having the clothes. <laughs> Well, that's always yeah figuring out what you're doing uh, so it's not, or not it's always important so i'm not going to say at the last minute some kind of that the oracle may have to say there will have, there must be nude dancing but at least we've made those tangible steps of actually getting certain objects made to get ready to do it and a whole lot of, of both talking and practicing with what different things might be required to do it and i'm really excited about it we'll definitely we will attempt to film at least some aspects of it and see and, you know, it's interesting what you're saying about the machine, because there's that thought about the recording device itself. They, it's been said, that, you know, that when the tape recorder is turned on, the 
gods depart. And I've always felt that isn't necessarily true um, about recording devices, but they are tricky to utilize them. In, yeah, a, no, no, certainly. in a liminal zone because they seem to be turning reality into an absolute fact. You know what I'm saying? Um, and that's not necessarily the case. Um, so, but anyway, we are going to attempt the experiment and see <laughs> how that will work. Yes, it should certainly be fascinating. I've truly enjoyed it. Thank you so much again for uh, for um, having conversation with me. I enjoyed this subject a lot. Oh, yeah, yeah, it's great. Well, I enjoy having these conversations with you as well. You have such a vast knowledge of metaphysics. It is uh, a little intimidating at times. <laughs> Uh, well, it's not intended that way. <laughs> just oh, no, thinking, no, I know you don't just, intend just, it that way. Yeah, just, just think. It's such a treasure yeah. trove of arcane knowledge, though. Uh, I'm a, I'm a, a, a relentless uh, hoarder of things because of the memory palace, you know, concept. So <clears throat> it requires you to constantly accrue more, more and more data to the, to the matrix. So no, it's really fun to share it, and I hope somebody. I, Hope that your that your listeners will find something to think about it and and some entertainment it is, if not edification. <laughs> I'm sure they will. Well, on that note, we will sign off for now. As always, thank you guys for listening, and good night and good luck to you all. <laughs>